The single highest funded U.S. agency, that of course would be the Pentagon, has failed its fifth audit. Yes, it fails every audit. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Real Story on the Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we'll be talking to Lee Camp. Lee is a comedian, a journalist, a former host of the TV show Redacted Tonight. Now he hosts the most censored news for Mint Press, and you can check out his podcast, The Lee Camp Show on Spotify. All of his work is available at leecamp.net. Lee Camp, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Brian. I can't wait to do one of these where we just have nothing left to talk about because it's all been fixed. Well, okay, so that means we can do another show, Lee. And we've (laughs) done several shows already on this question. I mean, when I interviewed you a couple years ago about the fact that I think the Pentagon couldn't find 20, I think it was $21 trillion of its assets. Couldn't find them, couldn't locate them, couldn't account for them and failed its audit, I thought like, wow, what a story. Obviously this is you know, so bad for the Pentagon, so bad for public relations, they're gonna fix it. Well, they haven't fixed it, they failed the fifth audit. Anyway, you did the story, your, your story is at Counterpunch, people can go to Counterpunch and find it. It's a great article, I really recommend everyone go and read it. But let's just talk about why the Pentagon can't keep track of its stuff. <laughs> And how much stuff is there? Yeah. And so, as you mentioned, this is the fifth audit. It was just concluded at the tail end of last year, 2022. And they've been federally mandated, every government agency is, to do an audit since 1990. And they just didn't do it until five years ago. They began doing these audits. And it takes thousands of auditors. It takes a full year, if not more. And it takes millions, hundreds, actually hundreds of millions of dollars to do it. And each time, this is the fifth time, each time they just come out and they do a press conference. And one of the, you know, like the undersecretary of defense says, we've completed our audit and we failed our audit. And that's essentially the end of it. <laughs> and then they do it again. Now, of course, they have a bunch of gibberish in there about, well, we 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 got to a, a, a finding quicker this year and that's a win. And it's like, no, not knowing where half of your assets are quicker is not a win. It doesn't mean you did anything better. And literally this year, and this was reported in The Hill, there was some slight reporting of this, but not enough. They said they are unable to account for more than half of all their assets. They're unable to figure out where they are, whether they're being used. And this includes, actually, I have it 
here somewhere. This includes 2.9 military personnel, sorry, million military personnel, 19,700 aircraft, 290 ships, and physical items such as buildings, roads, and fences on 4,860 sites worldwide. So that's how much they have. And half of that, they can't really account for. They don't know what state it's in, whether buildings are being used, that type of thing. It truly is just a, a mind-blowing numbers and, you know, we can get a little more into the 21 trillion again uh, here in a minute. But it also part of this story that blows my mind every year is that it gets so little coverage. There is a blip on mainstream media, but a lot of independent media as well, that they failed their audit yet again. They don't know where the largest killing machines assets, the largest in the world uh, organization of mass human murder a trillion dollars, if you count the black budget, well over a trillion dollars every year, and they don't know where this stuff's going. 19,700 aircraft. Now, half of all of the stuff they can't find. So I don't know if it's half of the 19,700 aircraft that they don't know where they are. Right. But there's some number of aircraft that they didn't, at least in the past, know where they were. You talked about it. Yeah, they literally announced... I don't have the article up here, but that they found aircraft, they found Black Hawk helicopters. These are these things cost multi, multi millions of dollars, and they would just find them. They'd be like, "Oh, there were nineteen, you know, Black Hawk helicopters that we didn't know about." There are literally buildings, entire buildings that they don't know that they own. There's entire buildings that they know they own, but they don't know who's in there, and then it turns out they're not being used. Even the um, Office of Inspector uh, General, the, sorry, Government Accountability Office actually, reported this. They said the DOD needs to improve its efforts to identify unutilized and underutilized facilities. And they sent inspectors to access a lot of the Army's real estate, various areas. And the investigators noted that the Army's database claimed that service officials reviewed facilities in the years 0012, 1776, 2201, and 3013. So they don't even know what years they're investigating their own buildings. Like this couldn't be overstated how insane this is that our Pentagon doesn't know where their assets are, how they're being used. You know, Defense Secretary Gates back years ago, said he was going to look into it, he was going to get to the bottom of it. And on, when he was outgoing, he gave a press conference where he said, we tried and we couldn't figure any of it out. He said, we couldn't even find out how many people worked in a given department. So the Pentagon can't even say we have this many people working here. You know, I've often said if someone doesn't have a job and they need one, they should go to the Pentagon and just say they work there. I feel like the Pentagon would have a tough time proving they don't. So... <laughs> When people say, you know, somebody, somebody, somebody got a blank check, it's an idiom, it's an American idiom, maybe because it's used so much, people don't really get it. And of course, now with money transactions, people don't actually write checks. So I'm, I'm concerned young people might not understand what a blank check means. But a blank check means that you give somebody a check, the recipient of the check, and they fill out the check. They fill out the check. Your signature's at the bottom. Lee Camp writes a blank check to the Pentagon, and they fill in the, the numbers. Now, the American taxpayers actually basically give a blank check to the Pentagon, and the Pentagon fills out the numbers. And the numbers are very large, Lee. 
this year, Congress is, well, you know, Congress added more money to the defense budget. This is the Democrats and the Republicans, you know, who fight each other so intensely, <laughs> who who spend most of their time investigating each other. I mean, that's the big significance of whether the Republicans or the Democrats control the House of Representatives is who's going to be investigated in the next two years during the next two congressional terms. So Democrats and Republicans, they just upped the Pentagon budget, the allocation, the appropriation for the Pentagon budget by, I think, 10 billion more than what the Biden administration asked for. And that was actually more than what the uniformed services in the Pentagon were actually asking for. So maybe almost $900 billion in the new you know, 2023 fiscal year budget. If you look at the discretionary budget, meaning not Social Security, not Medicare, et cetera, but you know, the things that can be voted on every year that are not entitlements, so education, housing, healthcare, et cetera, and you put federal discretionary budget, like the stuff human beings actually need on one side, and then the Pentagon budget, the Department of Defense budget, all of the elements, all of the items in the discretionary budget that are not defense don't equal the defense budget. So now it's about 900, almost $900 billion, more than 50% of our tax dollars in the discretionary federal budget go to the Department of Defense. So each year, Lee, we're giving them this kind of blank check and they fill it out. And it's like for so many helicopters and so many missiles and so many B-12 bombers and you know, you name it, every conceivable weapon, every conceivable piece of equipment. But the equipment they already have, they don't know where the hell it is, half of it. So that means they're just adding, adding, adding. And because it's a blank check, no matter what the Pentagon asks for, they receive it, even if they don't know where the already existing inventory is. That's a, like when you think about it in those terms, it's quite astonishing. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the little mainstream media coverage that there's been of this has tried to write it off, <laughs> write it off, has tried to write it off as, you know, oh, it's just accidents. It's little mistakes in bookkeeping. The New York Times notoriously did an article saying, no, there's not $21 trillion of unaccounted for adjustments on the Pentagon's books. They said, oh, it's just that uh, generals and, and these types of military personnel are not good at bookkeeping. But that has been refuted by the few excellent articles that have been done. There's been one or two tiny articles in Forbes, but they were quite good. And I want to read one of the quotes. This is from Forbes magazine. This is no lefty, uh, lefty rag. It says, this is not simply a matter of boring accounting. Trillions in unaccounted outlays, if that's what was involved here, is trillions of our tax dollars being spent without our knowledge. If that's the case, we're talking about the biggest government financial deception in the history of the country. Why is our government now systematically hiding these adjustments from public sight? And that's the other thing that you can point to, to know that these are not just little accidents, this is not something small, that they are hiding the records and disposing of the records that could show where this money is going, where it's getting lost, you know, really could help nail it down. To quote from The Nation, they did an excellent article a few years ago on this. 
They said DOD has literally been making up numbers in its annual financial reports to Congress, representing trillions of dollars worth of seemingly non-existent transactions, according to government records, interviews with current and former DOD officials, congressional sources, and independent experts. That's Dave Lindorf. I know you've talked to him before. And the nation's investigation also said more than 16,000 records that might reveal the source or destination of those trillions have disappeared, you know, likely been shredded. And so you don't hide this information if it's simply small mistakes that, oh, whoopsie, we got that wrong and we got that wrong. This is a massive fraud. And the articles and the investigative journalists that have actually looked into it have found exactly that. And, you know, the other thing is if this were an average American or an average corporation, you couldn't go to the IRS and say, hey, we can't account for half our assets and we'll see you next year and that's fine. Like if you ran a a shoe store or a daycare and you said, yeah, I'm missing half my inventory, half the children are missing. I don't think the IRS or the government would be cool with that. It would be a massive crime, which is what this is. This is the largest financial crime perhaps the world has ever seen. Yeah. And when you think about how the system works, like Mark Esper, who is Donald Trump's secretary of defense, who's now written a book, you know, because he resigned or was fired right after the election because he didn't want to get mixed up in Trump's efforts to, you know, to decertify the election results. So he sort of regained his place of honor. Well, he was the, he was Raytheon. And then he became Secretary of Defense. But he's not the only one. Every Secretary of Defense and most of the uniformed generals and admirals and retired colonels, as soon as they retire, as soon as they retire, they go out, they get their big government pension, they immediately start working for the arms manufacturers who then in turn employ them as lobbyists so that they can get with their old buds who are still in uniform, who will soon retire and be able to get these same hugely, you know, high paid jobs with the arms industry. And they talk with each other and they say, well, what do you need? What do you need? What do you got? What do you need? What do you got? Mm-hmm. And they make these sweetheart deals. And, you know, we're told, Lee, I was always told as a kid in school that one of the hallmarks of American democracy or democracy writ large is that the civilian government has dominant decision-making and oversight over the military. Like it's not a military dictatorship because civilians, not the uniform military, control the military. But here's the U.S. Congress, which has oversight, which according to the U.S. Constitution, it has two primary functions. One, the power of the purse, that is the power to budget, and the power to declare war. And those are the two sort of things that constitutionally that make the Congress Democratic. Well, it hasn't declared a war since 1941, even though the U.S. has been in endless wars, but it does pass the budget. And part of the budgeting process in 1990 was to declare and demand that every government agency conduct an audit. How is it that the uniformed officer led and civilian led Department of Defense, and again, this rotating door, this revolving door where they go in and out? How could they just say, yeah, we're not going to do the audit. And then ultimately they do the audit and they fail the audit. And as I was reading in your article in Counterpunch, they say, well, look, this is a teachable moment. 
meaning there's no accountability, there's impunity. And then when they're caught committing fraud or defying the civilian branch of government, they say, look, we're really learning. This is teachable. This is a good thing, actually. (laughs) Yeah, the way they discuss it, the press conferences they give, you would think that everything's going great. In many ways, they say it's a teachable moment. They say, we found several new weaknesses in how we account for assets, and that's a good thing. And again, none of that type of thing would be allowed from an entity that didn't have all the guns. I mean, (laughs) that's what it comes down to is Congress is not going to go after the Pentagon because a congressperson would then have to go up against the Pentagon, which they don't really want to do. And you see them say this, you see the the Undersecretary of Defense or whoever gives the press conference each year say similar things. And this year they noted that the Ukraine's ongoing war with Russia has offered the DOD a very teachable moment for us on the audit. And they said that allows them to see where precisely, you know, to track weapons and equipment and see where it goes in the event of a conflict. Of course, the idea of this being a positive that, you know, we are involved in a proxy war in Ukraine and as people are dying, we're we're learning. This is great. What a wonderful moment. But beyond that, we actually know they have not been able to keep track of where the billions of dollars of weaponry in Ukraine has been going. There was a, a key moment in back in August when CBS and CNN ran with it as well, did an investigation of why military aid in Ukraine is not getting to the front lines and is disappearing. And in that the investigation, they found that 30 to 40% of the supplies are maybe going to where they were intended. But ultimately, they got enough pressure from the government that CBS and CNN retracted at least the percentage. But it seems quite clear that whatever the percentage, a lot of the billions of dollars of weaponry going into Ukraine is just ending up on the black market and is sold wherever. And and yet here is the Pentagon saying, oh, well, this is wonderful. What a teachable moment. We're learning where these weapons are going in this proxy war. And they don't have the answers and they try and make us and the press think that this is okay. And it shows, again, such a failure, not just on our politicians and our Congress for keeping the Pentagon to any kind of account for this, but also our media. Our media clearly does not really care. There are not many articles on the fact that the Pentagon fails its audit every year. If there is a little article in the New York Times or something, it acts like, oh, you know, it parrots what the Pentagon is telling them that this is their learning and they're getting closer. And their big thing this year was they said, we are getting closer to an analysis more quickly, even though we're failing every year. And, you know, sucking more quickly and not knowing where all the money and weapons are going or where they are more quickly, to me, is not a real win. (laughs) No. When you think about the Ukraine war, again, the U.S. has sent, I think it's, you probably know the number more than I do at this point, but I think it's about $66 billion in, quote, aid. And again, a lot of that money just goes, it doesn't go to Ukraine at all. It just goes right to U.S. arms manufacturers so that they can resupply the Ukrainian military, which is under the direction, as we can see now, under the you know direct direction of the Pentagon and of NATO forces. A lot of that money just goes straight into the coffers of U.S. arms manufacturers, But still, let's just say $66 billion to Ukraine. We don't know how many people have died in the Ukraine war, Lee. I mean, many, many, many thousands, maybe tens of thousands, maybe even more Russians and Ukrainians at war. 
When you think back to before the war, the months before the war, when Russia was amassing troops in Belarus and on the eastern flank of Ukraine in Russia, you know, they brought together like 100,000 troops and they said, look, we're serious. We're going to do something. We have red lines. We're not going to allow the Pentagon to stage or put advanced missiles in Ukraine, our former sister republic in the USSR, on our border, on this very long border, missiles that we can't defend against. And the U.S. said, no, no, these are non-starters. You don't tell us what to do. You don't tell NATO who can be part of NATO. You don't tell the Ukrainian government which alliance it can be in and which alliance it can't be in. We're not going to listen to you. To hell with you. F you. Basically, that's what they said to the Russians. What they could have done is said, "Okay, we're going to make an arrangement with you whereby Ukraine will not be in NATO. Ukraine will not be the staging ground for advanced missiles. And I think the Russians would have said, "Okay, that's what we wanted. I think this war was completely 100 percent avoidable. And the reason the U.S. didn't do this obviously, you know, doable thing, which is to meet the Russians and say yes to their demands, which would have basically stabilized the situation, is the Pentagon wanted the war and the arms manufacturers want the war because the war is very good for them. They can keep stealing money, taking money, using our money, not using it for human need, using it for more and more weapons. And they can say it's for this noble cause to help the poor Ukrainians who nonetheless are dying and didn't need to be dying if the U.S. had adopted a different posture. I mean, this whole thing, when you look at it in its totality, it's murderous, it's mass murder, it was completely avoidable, but it's very, very profitable. And I think that's why they're all so happy in using Ukraine as a reference point as if something good is happening in Ukraine. Yeah, uh, those are all great points. And besides the fact that, like you said, we could have ended it before it started. Well, if we had, we in Ukraine had, uh, if we had signed off on Ukraine, signing something with with Russia, et cetera. But uh, on top of that, we know that in April, they were on the cusp of signing a peace deal that would have ended all of this only a few months after it started. And Boris Johnson, when he was prime minister, went to Ukraine, met with Zelensky and, you know, as an emissary of the U.S. basically, and said, you can sign this peace deal, but you're going to lose all of your allies, everyone behind you. And so you cannot sign this peace deal or you, we will not support you any longer. And, and so then that peace deal was ended right there and then, and they have not sat down again. And so the U.S. clearly wanted this to keep going on as it continues to drag on. One other point about the weaponry and where it's going in Ukraine is you mentioned that it's, you know, 60 some billion, I think, with promises of over 100 billion and to be sent to Ukraine. But that also does not count the I forget the military term they use, but the military weaponry that is sent from Afghanistan, where we were extracting weaponry and sent to Ukraine, basically just repurposed for a new war. And so we don't count that in the billions sent to Ukraine. So it's actually more weaponry than just that number of billions of dollars in weaponry. All this weaponry that is taken, U.S. weaponry is taken and just sent to Ukraine from other conflicts, such as Afghanistan. So yet again, you see that we don't know where this stuff is going. It is sent around the world to kill and maim. And, you know, in terms of money, 
Many people think that, you know, a lot of it, most of it is never printed. This is zeros and ones on a computer screen. But some of it actually is printed and literal physical dollars go missing. And, you know, there was a great study that found their investigation that found that 12 to 13 billion dollars of printed cash went missing in Iraq in a series of shipments like pallets of shrink wrapped dollar bills which is unbelievable because I really think that everyone is thinking this is not just blocks of bricks of shrink wrap money disappearing, but it's also that. There's that too. And, uh, you know, Matthew Ho, who's a veteran in Afghanistan, said at times he was given upwards of a million dollars to hand out to Afghanistan warlords and things, and no one was keeping any track of it. He could give it out to whoever, and no one would know where the money went. And literally at a safe by his bed as he was working for the U.S. Army and filled with a million dollars of shrink wrap bills to hand out. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. It's mind-blowing at every level. Indeed. Yeah, I mean, I remember those stories, too. That there was actually cargo planes, big, gigantic cargo planes flown from the United States to Iraq, and the only cargo they had on them were bills, $100 bills. Yeah. And they would come out off the plane, these giant stacks of cash and billions of dollars. And as you said, and as Matthew Ho documented, a lot of it just went missing. Because guess what? If you send billions of dollars in cash on a plane and hand it out, at, you know, like unloaded at the airport and then <laughs> give it to people to give out, for some reason, it just kind of, I don't know, it has a way of going missing. It has a way of walking off, yeah. Anyway, I want to ask you another about one other item that I think is so important because most of these weapons will never be used, which is good because if they are used, it's even worse. But when you think about the U.S. military budget, I mean, NATO, which has 30 countries, has a military, the combined military budget of all 30 NATO countries is about $1.4 trillion. But the U.S. has 900 billion of that 1.4. So the other 29 countries together, their military budgets constitute $400 billion. And the US constitutes by itself 900 billion. The Russian military budget is about 65 billion. In other words, less than one tenth of the US military budget. North Korea's military budget is the size of the New York City Police Department budget. (laughs) <laughs> and here you have, that's about $4.5 billion, by the way, which is pretty big for a police department, but not that big for a whole country. Now, I was interviewing Greg Mello from the Los Alamos Study Group, and they're the scientists and engineers and experts who are creating a peace, you know, contrarian organization to the Los Alamos nuclear facility that the Pentagon created and started building in 1942 with the Manhattan Project. He estimates that about $10 trillion has been spent on nuclear weapons since 1942. Now, $10 trillion, Lee, for weapons that have been used exactly twice, once in Hiroshima, once in Nagasaki. So out of the $10 trillion, two bombs have been dropped. All of the rest of the nuclear arsenal has never been used, but it's $10 trillion. Now, we don't want to say as Trump said, if we have nuclear weapons, why the heck don't we use them? That would be not a good idea. 
since it would mean the end of the human race. By the way, one Trident submarine has the nuclear capability to wipe out simultaneously 120 cities. 120 cities inhabited by humans can be wiped out by one Trident submarine. Yeah. My point, though, isn't about the lethality of the nuclear weapons. It's about the money. $10 trillion for weapons that aren't used, and if they were used, it would be even worse. But now the U.S. is going to spend $2 trillion. This was a campaign undertaken during the Obama administration to modernize the U.S. nuclear arsenal so that more and newer and lower yield nuclear weapons can be developed so that they could actually be usable, meaning getting closer to nuclear weapons. But when you look at it, big picture, it's just a big rat hole where our money is going down the rat hole but at the end of the rat hole, the rats who are getting this cash, they're the military capitalists. They're the ones who are making tons of money off of all of it. But again, if you call it national security, if you say it's to defend America or to love GIs or love the troops or love veterans, then it's cool. Yeah, it's an unbelievable amount of money and an unbelievable amount of death that could be caused with what they're using that money for. Like you said, it wouldn't take a whole lot of nuclear weapons, you know, 50 or 100 to destroy the planet for good to cause essentially human extinction. And yet we have thousands of nuclear weapons, which, you know, begs the question after they use that first hundred, what do they just want extras to keep destroying the planet after they've annihilated the human race? It, I don't know. It, it, imagination, like you can't come up with, with an idea of how this could be a worthwhile pursuit or something that humans should even be involved in. And like you said, $10 trillion. I, sometimes I try and put these numbers into some kind of perspective for people because I don't think the human brain can really calculate these numbers or think about these numbers. But I often like to point out that if you make $40,000 a year after taxes, not so bad. And if you want to make $1 trillion, you'd have to work for over 20 million years. It, it's, it's, it's a nonsense number. And yet, if we took that $10 trillion, or even if we just took $9 trillion of the amount we spent on nuclear weapons, we could use it. We could house everyone. We could fix every of the one of the bridges, 60,000 structurally deficient bridges across America. We fix all of those. We give everybody clean water. 2,000 cities in America have elevated to high lead levels. We could fix all the water. We could solve all of our problems. And then, of course, at the end of the day, there's also the fact that the United States can print all the money we want, which, you know, because of the petrodollar, we just keep printing money and it seems to have very little ramifications. And so much of it gets spent on military and weaponry. Yeah. Let's go to another topic real quick. You know, there was it took 15 rounds of voting for Kevin McCarthy to become the Speaker of the House. And the Democrats were really going at Kevin McCarthy, mocking him. And of course, there was a humorous side to it. The small group of like lunatic right wingers sort of took control of the process. But and McCarthy made lots of concessions to them. And we can talk at some other time about what those concessions were. Most of them are not really recognized. But it was considered like this great struggle within the Republican Party. And it showed the difference, apparently, between the sane and stable Democrats and the lunatic Republicans. And the thing that I want to emphasize and the thing that you have emphasized over and over again in your work 
recently is that whatever differences we think there are between the Democrats and the Republicans, and of course, the last, I don't know how many billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars that were spent on the last election cycle, but it was a lot. I think it was 14 billion or some huge number in the 2020 election. Yeah, I think, I think it was 16 billion. Yeah. Thank you. I knew you knew the right number. <laughs> but when you think about what, what the real deal is, the Democrats are very much like the Republicans in so many ways, not just the military budget. And you did some analysis and I think this was a real contribution. Kevin McCarthy, the leader of the Republicans in the House of Representatives, now Speaker of the House, and Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic opponent of Kevin McCarthy, the ranking minority leader in the House, they get their money pretty much from the same places. Yeah. You know, Hakeem Jeffries becomes the, the new leader of the Democrats in the House, taking the place of Nancy Pelosi, who has been there for 690 years and will be remembered by the mountains of money she made for herself and her friends. And so you see Jeffries come in, and I think many of the Democrats across the country and maybe many people that don't consider themselves Democrats thought, well, thank goodness someone knew, maybe this will be different. And so I went through and did a video of this uh, for most censored news, went through who funds, who the top funders of Hakeem Jeffries, and it's all at Open Secrets. Anyone can check it out who wants to, but you know our mainstream media doesn't dig into this kind of thing. And so I went through who funds him, and then you know a few weeks later, Kevin McCarthy becomes a speaker, and if you look at who funds him, it's a lot of the similar entities, but I thought I'd first go through who funds Hakeem Jeffries, so number one, his biggest funder at all is pro-Israel America PAC. So right off the top, you have the, you know, the pro-apartheid state funders of Hakeem Jeffries. But it doesn't stop there. Number two is NORPAC, another Israel lobbying firm. Number five is APAC, another Israel lobbying firm. So three of the top five funders of Hakeem Jeffries are an apartheid regime. And really these should be, you know registered as foreign agents, because that was the whole point of the registry of foreign agents was if you're a lobbying firm for a foreign government. But Israel lobbying firms apparently don't have to actually register as foreign agents. So that's three of the top five. But then you get into number three, which is vote sane pack. Boy, that sounds uh, wonderful, right? Let's all vote sane. How could that be anything bad? But there are articles written about how Vote Sane Pack is actually how the real estate industry makes its campaign donations secret. It's a giant funnel for the largest real estate industry players in the nation. You know, the biggest landlords across the country are the ones that Jeffries is accountable to. You know, this, of course, means he's not going to do anything for the little guy when it comes to housing and when it comes to rent and all of these things that these big real estate players want at the end of the day. Number four on his list is Comcast, which is one of the largest media entities in the world. So he's indebted and accountable basically to our largest corporate media entities. Also Comcast, uh, notably, twice over the past 15 years has been voted the most hated company in all of America, which pretty amazing considering the companies we have in America. Number seven of his biggest funders, and this is also on Kevin McCarthy's list as his Comcast, as his other real estate players, is Apollo Global Management. And this is an asset management fund with billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars in assets. And they fund horrible things like buying up UK pensions that were sold in a fire sale recently. But on top of that, 
The CEO and co-founder of Apollo is Leon Black, who last year stepped down because of his financial ties to Jeffrey Epstein, but it gets worse. Just a few weeks ago, Leon Black, uh, according to Financial Times, a woman said she was raped at convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein's New York home by Leon Black and has sued the former executive and Epstein's estate in Manhattan court. So that's what Apollo Global Management is. And yet Hakeem Jeffries still has no problem with that being the seventh largest funder he has. And, you know, I'll basically stop there. Number eight is J.P. Morgan Chase, another horrific entity that funds the destruction of the world. And if you look through Kevin McCarthy's, yes, it's not all the identical entities, but it is all of the same type of entities. It is big real estate. It is big pharma. You know, maybe one of the differences is that the Israel lobby gives more money to Jeffries and big oil gives more money to Kevin McCarthy. But there's not really that much difference between who is funding these two characters that are supposed to be this severe, you know, we're, we're told we're in the most divided country we've ever seen, and it's divided between Democrats and Republicans. But, you know, I'm one of these crazy people who keeps pointing out that these two groups agree on, you know, 80 to 90% of the structural issues of this country, and the funding behind them says the same thing. Indeed. I mean, capitalism includes the element of competition. The capitalists compete with each other. So there's, you know, the daggers are out when it comes to who's going to win the race to get market share. But when you look at the totality of the system, the capitalist class against the people, they're pretty united. When it's the capital, U.S. capitalist class using the Pentagon as its tool against the people of the rest of the world, they're pretty united. When it comes to sanctioning Cuba or Venezuela, they're pretty united. When it comes to sanctioning Iran, they're united. So, yeah, they have these fierce fights. And sadly, parts of the left think, oh, well, we have to stop the right. So by stopping the right, that means we have to accept the lesser evil, even if it means holding our nose when we go into the polls, because the stench of the Democrats is kind of a bit overwhelming. We have to do it. But in reality, it's one ruling class party with two heads. And, you know, they take turns ruling the capitalist state and, you know, acting as the servants of the corporations. And in the case of the state of Israel, as you mentioned, Hakeem Jeffries, I mean, the state of Israel is supported by both parties. It's an extension of American power. It's certainly been so since 1967 when the Israeli government launched the Blitzkrieg assault against its Arab neighbors. That's when Israel seized the West Bank. That's when it seized Gaza. That's when it seized the Golan Heights, you know, that seized a big part of Egypt as well, that only came back to Egypt as part of the Camp David agreement with Sadat in 1979, when Egypt decided that it would take the largest Arab army out of the contest and allow the Palestinians basically to be ground up by the Israeli defense forces. But, you know, I want to play a short clip from Hakeem Jeffries. It's an amazing clip because people think, oh, Hakeem Jeffries, he's not Kevin McCarthy. He's not a right-wing Republican. He's an anti-racist, right? Well, Israel is an apartheid state, everyone. It's a racist state. Listen to Hakeem Jeffries. I'm confident that Israel will prevail in the end because you faced, Israel faced aggression in 1948, and Israel prevailed. And then you faced aggression in 1967, and Israel prevailed. And then you faced aggression 
1973, and Israel prevailed. And then you had to deal with the first intifada, and Israel prevailed. And you, Israel had to deal with the second intifada, and Israel prevailed. And then missiles were flying in December of 2008, and Israel prevailed. And then missiles were flying in November of 2012, and Israel prevailed. And so I'm confident that when it's all said and done, we're going to stand together. Israel today, Israel tomorrow, Israel forever. God bless you. Wow, there's just so many lies there. In 1967, Israel carried out an unprovoked war where it seized, as I said, the West Bank, Gaza, et cetera, et cetera. That was the 1967 war. He says, you prevailed in the first intifada. Well, that was against the Palestinians who were rising up in the areas in the West Bank and Gaza who had been seized illegally by the 1967 war. He says, you prevailed in the second intifada. Well, again, the Palestinians living under occupation, having their homes and territory seized illegally in a war that the UN itself condemned. He's saying, no, you prevailed against them. And then the 2008 and 2014 wars where missiles were coming at you, that's when Israel was bombing Gaza over and over again and killing thousands of people in Gaza and blockading Gaza so the people in Gaza could not breathe. I mean, for the people on the left, Lee, who say the Democrats are maybe not great, but a good alternative. Okay, if you're cool with apartheid and aggression, if you're cool with apartheid and a racist apartheid state doing that, then yeah, the Democrats are your party. But if you're not, you can't really in good conscience follow Hakeem Jeffries or the Democratic Party. Yeah, and nor the Republican Party. But yes, the idea that, oh, Israel prevailed, it's, I mean, you could say the same thing about plantation owners in slavery for hundreds of years. <laughs> yeah, they prevailed. It doesn't mean it was right. Israel is the more powerful military state, and they're prevailing, quote unquote, against mostly poor people. Also, 50% of all Palestinians are under 18. So, you know, a 50% child population of rather poor people who have all the buildings destroyed, can't get, you know, clean water, much less military weaponry in there. And Israel is, quote unquote, prevailing. This is not something to celebrate. This is something, many of these are war crimes. We watched in the Great March of Return as you had Israeli snipers picking off elderly women, children, press, medics with the Red Cross and various other symbols showing that they're medics, showing that they're press, and they're killing these people. These are war crimes. It's undeniable. And to celebrate that and say, yay, Israel is prevailing with their war crimes, it's not something to cheer. It's not something to celebrate. And in case this needs saying, criticisms of Israel are no criticisms of Jewish people. I am Jewish, but I do not want to see Israel be a, an apartheid regime. I do not want to see them crush other human beings so that they can have a one religion state. It's disgusting. And in fact, it allows anti-Semitism to actually grow and spiral out of control to act like any criticism of Israel is a criticism of Jewish people. I couldn't agree with you more. When we see the rising tide of right-wing pro-fascist and fascist organizations and movements that target black people, target Arab people, target Jewish people, the rising tide of anti-Semitism or anti-Muslim bigotry or anti-black racism or anti-immigrant hysteria, 
these are real issues. And, you know, the Israeli state is not helping and defending and supporting Jewish people and the plight of Jewish people by conflating Judaism and Jewish people with an apartheid state. It, in fact, does just the opposite. So I couldn't agree with you more. Lee Camp, I really want to encourage people watching this show or listening to the show to become more, if they aren't already, you know, tuned into what you're doing. You know, you have been censored. You called yourself, I think, the most censored comedian. You have a new show on Mid Press. I watch the show. I, I look to it. I learn a lot from it. You had an amazing interview with Stella Assange just in the last week. As we close up here, I want to talk to you about Julian Assange real quick, about your interview. And again, for people watching this show or listening to it, go and watch your show with Stella Assange. Her burden is great here. She's holding it up. Yeah, She's an attorney. And the facts that she presents about Julian are really super important about the extradition process, things that I think most people just don't know. Again, there's a little bit of hopefulness. There's been a global movement about Julian. There's some changes taking place within the Australian government regarding Julian's case. But anyway, just as we close out here, your thoughts and reflections based on your interview with Stella Assange, Julian's wife. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Everybody can check out my stuff at leecamp.net. That's probably the easiest place to find a lot of my work. But this interview and a lot of my videos are at the Mint Press YouTube channel, youtube.com slash behind the headlines. So I hope people will check out the interview there with Stella Assange. Yeah, she is clearly burdened. She's clearly exhausted because she's doing interview after interview after interview to raise attention to the what's been done to her and continues to be done to her husband. But Some of the key points are that he is being tortured. This is torture. Solitary confinement is torture. He'll be tortured even worse in the United States if he's extradited. And I think one of the biggest points that she makes is that this extradition hearing, and maybe most extradition hearings, are very little about the law. She said it's 99% about the environment, the political environment, the feeling in the air, what people are are protesting or not protesting, paying attention to or not paying attention to, and about 1% about the law. And, you know, every analysis I've seen of what's happening, Julian Chan says the same thing, that there's very little legal truth there. It's just about whether people are going to fight back and get furious. And, you know, hopefully we see a change this year because it is horrific what's been done to one of the best and most successful journalists and publishers this world has ever seen. And for that, he's being tortured. But yes, people can see that interview at leecamp.net. And thanks again, Brian, for having me. Lee Camp, again, for our audience, he hosts the most censored news for Mint Press. You can check out his podcast, The Lee Camp Show on Spotify and all of his work at leecamp.net. Lee Camp, thank you so much. Thanks again, Brian. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.